Jesus' precious name, I pray. You may be seated. So, uh, as our men come forward to receive the offering, uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, if you would, if you can do both at the same time. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, if you have your smart device with you, do the Version app. Uh, if you would, just hold it there. And uh, listen, I, I don't know about you. I, it is hard for me to believe next Sunday is Christmas Eve. Does that seem hard for anyone else to believe? Uh, that's just ridiculous. I hope that you've begun to think through uh, the Christmas Eve services and who you are inviting and you've already asked somebody and maybe even picked up one of the cards out in our lobby to use as an invitation to, uh, to invite them to come. And just so that you know uh, of the five services that we're doing, so Friday night and Saturday night, uh, we'll meet in, all of the services are here, but we'll also have nursery and preschool available those evenings on Sunday morning, the first service, Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. So during this hour, uh, all of our children's programming will be available. And so, uh, listen, if you've got, you know, great children in your life, children that you love, uh, please invite them to come with you. And if their parents insist, they can come too. But, uh, but be sure to, to be here for that next Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Again, nursery and preschool at 11 o'clock next Sunday. All children uh, will be in here. If there are children here at 11 o'clock uh, on Sunday night, they'll be in here with us. And so I hope that you'll take advantage uh, of the opportunity to invite some friends to be here. Now, one of the things we associate with Christmas is gift giving. And I have no official scientific data available to me on this, I'm, but I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that the number one question that is asked at Christmas time, especially to children. So if we throw children into the mix, definitely this is it. What do you want for Christmas, right? How many of you have asked somebody, you've already asked somebody that question, especially if you have children uh, around you. And I love that question as a kid. Um, and I don't know if you're old enough. Some of us are old enough to remember looking through actual catalogs at toys, right? I'm not talking about these little skinny ad things they have to, I'm talking about massive catalogs that you had to be able to lift several pounds to be able to get that thing and look. Now you can go online, see all these cool things, which is great. But here's the question I want you to think about. It's on your notes at the very top. If you would, what is it that makes a good gift? If, if what do you want for Christmas is like the top question that's being asked at this time of year, what is it that makes a good gift? Is it the amount of money that you spend on it? Is it that the, the best gifts, the good gifts come from a specific store or have a specific name brand on them? Or is, uh, is it perhaps a good gift? Maybe you're thinking a good gift has to be practical. I mean, it has to be something if you can use it every day of the week, that's the best kind of gift. Is that the best? Is that what makes a gift great? Uh, and so as we get ready to move into this, first of all, I just want to put to rest, if you're here for the first time this morning, really glad that you're here. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor. And I'm not, just so you know, I am not about to put the beat down on gifts. Gift-giving. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, um, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I believe that. On your notes, you'll see these quotes. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving, right? And you make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. And I believe what Jesus said. And I believe those quotes because I think they reflect what Jesus said. 
And some of you have heard me talk about that. My personal goal, my personal goal, and I hope it becomes your personal goal, but my personal goal for you for Christmas is that you don't have any debt in January. That when, when we're done celebrating Christmas uh, here in this month, that, that you go into January and you're not thinking about paying for that in January, February, March, April, or however long, you know, some people pay for, I just, I don't want that for you. So again, let me say, I'm not going all Scrooge on you. I haven't turned into the, into the Grinch uh, overnight. I love Christmas. I love giving. I really love receiving. But I think as the kingdom of God, right, we need to make sure that we're not picking up any unhealthy tendencies from the culture around us. As a matter of fact, it's my opinion that the church should be influencing the world as to how to celebrate best Christmas rather than having the world influence uh, so this morning, what, I'm, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a pretty familiar passage, and I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit uh, so that you can see what's going on behind the story that was actually influencing the story. And we're going to look at a couple of names, and if you've ever read the Christmas story or if you've ever heard the Christmas story read, my guess is, my bet, you've heard these names. You just didn't know what they brought to the story, necessarily the depth of it. So let's check this out together. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, we'll stop for a moment because you know this part of the story. What you may not know is they weren't actually kings. Most likely they were men of regal office. It's believed that they were priests in Persia who specialized in astrology and dream interpretation and magic. And they've been following this star looking for the one born king of the Jews. So they show up in Jerusalem. Because, of course, the king of the Jews is going to be born in the capital city. The problem is that this new king isn't being born in the palace, which begins, by the way, to help us understand what's going on in verse 3 a little bit. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I just want to say this about this, path, this verse right here. You cannot all cap, underline, highlight, bold those two words, all Jerusalem, enough. Because if Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy, uh, especially in Jerusalem. And so listen, he was, he was called King Herod. But reality was he was appointed governor of the area. And then seven years later, the Roman empire gave him the title of king. And then later they gave him another title. He was called the king of the Jews, which may sound familiar uh, in another context. Uh, in some circles, he was known as Herod the Great because he kept the peace in Palestine, which by the way, was no small feat. And because he was responsible for building great buildings, it could be incredibly generous. He was wealthy. He was politically gifted. He was intensely loyal. Even some of his enemies admired him. And so he sounds like a great guy. The problem is King Herod was a Jekyll Hyde kind of guy because he was also known as a murderous old man. He was insanely jealous and suspicious. And if he suspected anyone was a rival to his throne, he had them immediately eliminated. He murdered three of his sons because he thought they were going to try to take his throne. He murdered his favorite wife. Favorite wife. Um, and his mother-in-law. But I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the throne or not. Um, but that's why. So listen. 
Historically, that last statement may not be accurate. Uh, that's why, listen, if you know him, if you know this about King Herod, verse 16 doesn't come as a surprise. Still appalling, still horrible, horrendous. But it's not surprising because Herod listened to what the Magi said and he began to put the calendar together in his mind. And so that's why he has all the children two years old and uh, under eliminated. They're a threat to his throne and he's not going to have it. Listen, it's why, listen, if you're wondering who's in charge when Jesus is born, if you're wondering who was in charge... It was Rome. Herod was kind of a big deal. Not a huge deal, but kind of a big deal. He was also kind of a something else too, but we don't use that kind of language in church. Listen, that's who's in charge locally when Jesus is born. Now, another name, when Luke writes his gospel that you may recognize, uh, when, he, when his readers, original readers would have read this, they would have gotten the picture. But for us, look at this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The entire Roman Empire in that day stretched from what we call India to what we call uh, England uh, today. And if anyone got in their way, they crushed them, crushed them. So... Just a brief history lesson. We'll keep this very brief, but I think it's pretty pertinent. A general by the name of Verus responded to a revolt in the city of Sepphoris right around the turn of the century. He burned the city to the ground, and then he slaughtered the population. He crucified 2,000 people that day. Several years ago, I got to go to Israel. I went to visit where Sepphoris used to be. In its day, it was less than four miles away from the town of Nazareth. You may recognize that name. That name of that town is where Jesus grew up. And when Verus destroyed it, Jesus would have been a teenager. I tell you that because when he was a teenager, Jesus would have seen literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crosses lining the road, people being murdered on them. Because that reminded everyone, in case you're wondering who's in charge, Rome is in charge. Rome is in control. So part of our Christmas story that maybe you've never heard is that it all starts in the shadow of this incredibly powerful empire. Okay, not not that empire. Uh, but, but it wasn't just as mean as that empire, all right? Uh, so the birth, I really thought that would be a clever little tie-in, you know, the whole start of the movie. Come on now, I know. The birth of, Je- the birth of Jesus, right? So the birth, of, the birth of Jesus takes place against this backdrop of the Caesars. And just so you know this as well, Caesar's not a name. It's actually a political title. And some of the Caesars would have been better than the others. Hadrian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, relatively not so bad. But then you had wackos like Caligula, who, as the story goes, planned to appoint his horse as chief counsel to Rome. Think about that, right? Many of them were men who abused their power. Caesar Augustus, the guy that Luke mentions, his real name is Octavian. He was adopted by Julius Caesar. And Octavian goes on a systematic process of getting Rome to recognize him as a God. Now, Rome was full of gods. They had multiple gods they worshiped, so it wasn't a big deal to them. But when Julius Caesar died, 
Octavian said Julius was a god, which made him then the son of a god, right? And when he took the throne, he gave himself the title Augustus, which means the revered one. And the poets of his day, so not Bible writers, but poets like the poet Virgil, were writing of a child that would be born who would mediate between heaven and earth, who would bring about a big change in the human condition, uh, who, who would bring peace and happiness. And Augustus sets out to convince the empire that he is that child. So you start to see statues of him popping up in pagan temples. There's a priesthood that develops around him. And when Rome would go in and destroy a town or a city, they would erect a monument or a structure that was to bring glory to Caesar. Now, historian Ethelbert Stauffer, and his name's not really important, except I thought Ethelbert is such a... I mean, we just don't name kids the way we used to. We need to bring this one back. So if anyone's pregnant looking for a name, there you go. But Ethelbert, listen, he did something really... He did something very uh, wise. He, he said he could determine what the culture was like by studying the phrases found on their coins. And so look at some of the phrases he found on the coins in that day. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus. That was on a coin. Uh, there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Caesar is Lord. Caesar's the one who will bring about peace. Caesar is the one who will bring about happiness. Caesar announced a 12-day celebration of his birth that he called the 12 days of Advent. You see where this is going? Because this thing is on a collision course with a group of followers of this Galilean carpenter named Jesus, who they say is Lord. As a matter of fact, Peter, who's one of the leaders of this new movement, is on trial in Acts chapter 4, and he says this, salvation is found in no one else. Does that sound familiar? Think it'd be familiar to them in their day? For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The early church was taking political propaganda, injecting Jesus' name in it to make this point. Caesar isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. By the way, that's the kind of thing that got people killed back in the first century. When people would pass on the street. You know, when we pass on the street today, what do you say to people when you pass them? Don't you say, hey, how's it going? happening you know, that kind of stuff hey chief hey skipper you know especially if you don't remember their name um but what you say you know just hey back in that day they would say caesar is lord your response was the lord is caesar but the christians were responding caesar isn't lord jesus is lord i'm telling you it's the kind of thing that not just could get people killed it got people killed in that day so Francis Schaeffer said it like this. I want you to see what he said. So not just me reading it, but you actually looking at his words. Let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They weren't killed because they worshiped Jesus. Nobody cared who worshiped whom so long as the worshiper did not disrupt the unity of the state, which was centered in the formal worship of Caesar. The reasons that Christians were killed was because they worshiped Jesus as God and they worshiped the infinite personal God only. The Caesars wouldn't tolerate this worshiping of one God only because they considered that treason. Now, I give you all of that because this is the backdrop uh, in which the church emerges. 
So how do you think it went over in that culture when Christians began telling the Christmas story? Go back and read the Christmas story now with this sort of thinking in mind. That's what's going on in the world around them. So when the angels say that God is going to bring peace to all people, not Caesar, God is going to do this. When the angel says to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to name him Jesus. And, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Think about what that meant to them in that culture with the messages that they were receiving in that day. But more important than that, think about what it means in our day. I'm giving you that because of the messages we receive there are a lot of Caesars in our world. We don't call them Caesar anymore. But there are a lot of voices of authority. And if we're going to be honest, sometimes we bow down to the altars they build. The altar of beauty and the altar of sex and power and education and fame and influence. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things if they're enjoyed in the context, within the context that God has given us. I say all that again because specifically at Christmas, the message from the Caesars that we receive comes through ads and commercials and flyers. And we're being told that the way to really enjoy Christmas is to buy these things. To show someone that you really love them, you buy them this. Because everyone in this room already knows that every kiss begins with, right? We hear the messages. And Forbes magazine says that this year, Americans will spend over a trillion dollars during the holidays. Our country alone will spend over a trillion dollars. That alone says those messages just might be working on us. Because there's this voice that whispers, the more you love someone, the more you'll spend on them. Right? The more I think of you, the more expensive the gift will be. And if I really love my kids, the gifts will be piled as high as the tree is. And I'm embarrassed to say, I used to buy into that. I believed that. Dr. Thomas Holmes and his colleagues at the University of Washington have done considerable research in the area of human stress. And they measured stress in terms of life-changing units. For example, if your spouse died, it was 100. I mean, it's, the, it's big. It's 100. Uh, divorce is 73. Uh, pregnancy, if you're pregnant, it's, it's 40 life units. If you're remodeling your house, it's 25. And Christmas, just Christmas happening, <laughs> is 12. 12 stress units. I'm wondering if there might be some correlation between what we're being told in our culture, how to celebrate the holiday, and these stress units. So I want to give you a couple of truths. Here's the first one. It's on your notes. One way I show you I love you is by giving you gifts. Because we know it's true that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving, right? If you love someone, you're going to give to them. It's, just, it's how we express love. But that first question again, look at it one more time. What is it that makes a good gift? Is it the amount of money? Is it the name on the, the product? Is it that it's completely practical? Or is a good gift the one where you have put some thought into who is receiving this gift and what it is that they may like? And will what you're giving them communicate thought and love? 
because I want to make sure you catch this in light of what we're being told. Giving doesn't equal buying. And I, I hope it's not too late to tell you that. But giving and buying are not the same thing. And I love this. It's on your notes. To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you might be the world. So your gift, give someone a day. Can you, can you, can you give someone a whole day? Over the next couple of weeks, you may have people gathering, family, friends. You might be going somewhere. And maybe there's going to be children there. Can you get on the floor and play with them? Can you sit on the sofa and, and, do, and play some? Can you just be, be with them? Over the next couple of weeks especially, can you do a, a random act of kindness? It could be as simple. Listen, it could be as simple as a note or a heartfelt I love you. This is why we slow down. Last, this, this whole month, we've been talking about in, the importance of slowing down. And a lot of people have said, man, I really resonate with that. Part of the reason you resonate with it is because the best gift you give, and you know this, you know this. The best gift you give is you. Let me show you something. This is called the youngest road. It's also known as El Camino de la Muerte. Anyone know Spanish that I may have just slaughtered? The Spanish is the road of death. That's what this is called. It's legendary for extreme danger. And in 1995, the Inter-American Development Bank christened it as the world's most dangerous road. It goes all the way from Bolivia down to the Amazon River Basin. And if you're wondering why it's called the most dangerous road, it's because there have been estimates that over between two and 300 travelers every year, every year are killed on this road. The road actually uh, has alongside of it crosses marking where many people have gone over the side uh, to their death. When you look at it, no guardrails, huge drop-offs, fog, rain affects it, mudslides. It's just a bad stretch of road. I think this is interesting. Since the 90s, it's become an increasingly popular tourist attraction. And some of you in the room are going, who are the idiots that would go? And others in the room are going, yeah, we got to go there, right? So you're, you're, you're with your buddies and you're at this road. Would you go? I mean, because it would make a great story, right? And it's crazy. But some people would do it and, and their thinking goes something like this. I know it's crazy. <laughs> and I know it's dangerous but I'm going to be different. Right? I know people die on this road, but it won't be me. I can handle it. And the reason I know people think that is because we do that every day. Every day people don't go down roads. They have no business going down. And what they tell themselves is I will be different. I can handle it. I can navigate this road just fine. No one, I know others can't, but I will make it. And one of the most dangerous roads that you can go down any time of the year, but it seems to happen a lot at Christmas time, is the road that says, I show you I love you by buying you gifts. And do you know what makes it so easy at Christmas time? Is we're so busy. It's just quicker to buy somebody something than it is to spend time with them. And sometimes you can buy them a gift and just leave it and they're not even there. So now you've really saved time. By doing that, right? 
And if you go down this road this Christmas, Christmas becomes a little more than a checklist. It's just a thing you have to do. So think back over the last couple of weeks or maybe this week, do you have that list? <laughs> got to get this for them, got to get this for them, got to get this for them. I mean, you're just going down this list and you're just checking it off. And if you go down this road, you will buy more. And you will want to give cool things to your friends so that they think cool things about you. And you will begin to judge your self-worth by your net worth. And I'm not against stuff. I like stuff. But, but stuff sometimes keeps us from noticing Jesus. And my always wanting more teaches my children and grandchildren and the generations that follow, it teaches them to always want more. I've struggled with this. <laughs> We've been working on this for years in our house. This is why we slow down. We, not just for the sake of slowing down. We've talked about it. And again, you, you people have said, man, I just really, the, the idea is great. And last week, Adam reminded us that one of the reasons we slow down is not just to slow down, but so that we can slow down to seek God. And, and this is important. Write this down. It's not in your notes. I want to make sure you get it. Today, I am reminding you that we slow down so we can give more of ourselves. That's why we do it. Not just for the sake of slowing down. It's so that we can actually give more of ourselves. When we're moving fast, we can't stop long enough. We can't even think long enough to give ourselves to anyone. Not God, not our spouse, not our children, not our parents, not our friends. So here's your next step in your faith. You ready? Today. Beginning today, this week, especially over Christmas, but please don't make this just a Christmas thing. And I'm not saying it's wrong to give gifts. I'm just reminding you that the best gift you can give is you. So play with children, the children in your family, in your neighborhood. Just if there are kids around you, I'm not talking about, you know, manufacturing the event, but go. If there are kids around you, play with them, give them time, sit down with someone, ask them how they are doing and what's going on in their life and then just wait and let them and just encourage them to tell you. Hold hands and watch a Hallmark movie. Wow, wow. There's a high cost to that one, I understand. Yeah. Think about that though, think about it. This week, we had a family in Miamisburg lose their house. To my knowledge, they are not part of our congregation, but we are helping them. We have a family in our church who has a house that they are opening up to them. <laughs> Can you believe that? They, they're, they're opening up a house to them. Here's the thing. We didn't anticipate this. They didn't anticipate this, but they want to help. And to do this quickly, to turn it over quickly, uh, we're in touch with the family, but we need help cleaning it out. We need help cleaning it up. And if you have any furniture that you are not using, you know, Betsy talked a little bit ago about folks who helped her out with, with furniture. If you have anything like, they've already been in touch with our threads ministry for clothing. But if, but if you, listen, so Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, or furniture, you can be part of God's answer to their prayer. Think about that. They have prayed to God. You can be part of the answer to that prayer. I will say this, if you say yes to this, you will say no to something else. 
You have to. But this year, can we let compassion trump consumption? Can we let the idea of giving of ourselves be more of the gift than, than just buying a bunch of things? And we practice this every Sunday. Our time of communion ought to be a time when this is easy to remember because especially at this time of the year, it ties the two most important days on the Christian calendar together, Christmas and Easter, and helps us at this time of year remember it's not just that Jesus came, it's why he came. So check these quotes out. I love these. I think they're on your notes as well, but I put them up here. The best gift the world has ever received came wrapped in a manger. Christmas is love tugging man back to God with the powerful grasp of a tiny hand reaching out from a bed of straw. And Christmas is the time of year we remember that God gave the gift of his son because we needed him, not because we asked for him, but because we need him. Which is why the angel said to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the Lord's, pro so the Lord's promise came true, just as the prophet had said. A virgin will have a baby boy, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. His best gift, God's best gift is his presence, God with us. It's why we stop and remember today and every week. It's why we, when we celebrate, we don't just remember that Jesus came. We remember why Jesus came. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we do stop right now. And our desire is that we... We build into our time of worshiping you. We come to sing, we come to hear, we come to pray, we come to give. But God, we come to stop. And we come to be quiet and to listen and to be with you. And so God, in this moment, where we celebrate and remember Jesus giving his life on the cross for our sins, when we hold in our hands the emblems that remind us of his body and his blood, that instead of, of paying money or, or some other sort of sacrifice, you came to earth, you left heaven and came to earth to live a sinless life, and to die not because of something you had done wrong, but because of all the things that we have done that's wrong. God, thank you for that. We draw near to the manger at Christmas that we might see the cross of Easter. So God, in this moment, in the quietness and the stopping, may we remember and may you be honored. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.